0: Morning. How is everyone? Good. So I am building a friendship with a resident. Okay, we yank something out of the chronicles of living among the elderly. building a relationship with a resident. And every time that I see this resident, she reminds me of something that took place between us that I've never been aware took place between us. Every time I see this resident, she reminds me of that time when we were the only two people that showed up for church and we spent about 45 minutes talking in the parking lot and nobody else came. Every time. Do you remember that time that, that we showed up for church early and nobody else came and it was just 45 minutes of just me and you talking? you remember that? Every time. Yes, I remember that. And it doesn't matter who's around, if it's a CNA It doesn't matter if it's another resident. If somebody else is present, she makes it a point to repeat that story. Do you know that him and I spent 45 minutes in the church parking lot talking one day when nobody else showed up? Matter of fact, she called me over to her table in great distress along with another resident beside her that was in great distress. She said, listen, this lady missed her train, she's lost her luggage, and we need to call the police. Oh, by the way, do you know that him and I used to sit and talk in the parking lot for 45 minutes? Love her to death. The story's changing. The last time I heard the story, it was, do you remember that time that me and you went for a walk in the woods, just me and you alone? Um, can you give me a little heads up on what that looked like before I quickly could see to that so so as this story and saga unfolds, keep you updated <laughs> <laughs> okay, as long as we haven't gone through walks in the woods or... It's said that D.L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists of all time, to the point that one of his British companions came to him and said, listen, tell me the secret to your success in relation to evangelism. D.L. Moody calls him over to the window that they're standing at. He says, look out this window. Tell me, what do you see? The man says, I see busy London Street. He said, look again. What do you see? see businessmen. I see professional men. I see the rich. I see the poor. I see an array of people. Not really certain what it was that Moody was fishing for. And so Moody stands in front of the window, obviously full of empathy, and it was known because of the emotion that was defining him at the moment. And he said, let me tell you what I see. I see a London that is going to hell unless they know a saving knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. And until you see people that way, you will never lead people to Christ. We can look at the lost world. We can look at a self-absorbed culture and we can be overwhelmed and defined by empathy. I think that's a good thing. The Savior was defined by empathy and compassion. But I want to offer a caution. When it comes to the workings of the gospel in the life of a man, especially when we talk about the gospel and the workings of the gospel and the way the gospel pans out and plays out from a reformed perspective, as we've done at times, it's real easy to think that man can become a victim in in this grand scheme where everything is spinning out of his control and he plays no role whatsoever. Man can't believe unless God calls him to believe Therefore, unless God calls the man, he has no hope to believe whatsoever. Poor, poor man. And if we're not careful, our empathy can shift in an unnatural way to the point that we begin to view man as a mistreated victim by God. Oh God, why? How? If we're not careful. And I want to say that to bring clarity to the idea and the depth and the roots of unbelief this morning. Because I think that it is so important to establish that unconverted and unregenerate man is not simply birthed into unbelief and then forsaken of any hope that he could ever believe. That's not the case at all. Rather, unregenerate, unconverted man is consumed by a sin nature, and he is therefore motivated by unbelief. He is energized in his unbelief. He is strengthened in his unbelief, and he draws contentment from his unbelief. So let's be clear, unbelief in Christ is necessarily belief in the person. So whether it's unbelief in Christ or belief in myself, listen, it's not subliminal. It's not surreal. Unbelief has forms of life and forms of light. Hopeless forms, lifeless forms, yes, but forms nonetheless that unsaved men cling to with their very being because that's where their confidence is. So, when we look out the window of our world into an unsaved world and an unregenerated culture, do we have empathy? Absolutely. Do we see poor victims? Never. Never. Never do we say that. So this morning we're going to talk about belief. Now, in order to talk about belief, we have to talk about unbelief. So I think it's important to just say something from the outset for a brief moment. Oftentimes we think that when we're talking about belief, especially from John's perspective, as we read John chapter 20, verse 31, where John said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Him. It's easy to think that the belief that is offered is necessarily only for those who are lost. And let me suggest this morning, beloved Christian, if you're here, we need belief. We need belief because belief is our perseverance. We will persevere. We will stand before the Lord. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant as we persevere in belief. So let's talk about that this morning. Please, as we open our Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So His brothers said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about Him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, He's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, God, and we would ask that You would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to grasp, our hearts to to embrace God come to us. Holy Spirit, fill us that we would believe if by chance, God, there is a person, an individual here that does not know You. Open up their heart to believe. For all of the saints that are gathered here, God, open our hearts to deeper degrees of belief that we would be defined by more faith, more love, more steadfastness, more passion, more commitment, more conviction. So God, we ultimately stand at your mercy asking, help us believe. For your glory, Jesus' name, amen. Three brief, quick, I shouldn't even say that. Three principles that we're going to talk about this morning. One, to believe in Christ is to focus on His glory. Of course, that's said in contrast to us focusing on our glory. Secondly, to believe in Christ is to finally be satisfied. Doesn't that sound good? Lastly, to believe in Christ is to faithfully submit to His Lordship. Faithfully doesn't mean perfectly. Faithfully means a standard that we're just going to try to live by this morning. So let's look at the first idea. To believe in Christ is to focus on His glory, I do want to reread verses 1 through 5. After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews feast of the booths was at hand so his brother said to him, "Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly." If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. R.C. Sproul states that this is one of the most troubling and tragic passages in the whole of the New Testament because of that one small sentence that we see in verse 5. Not even his brothers. Brothers believed in Him. Listen, the roots of unbelief go deep into the heart and they spread wide into the mind. And our author, John, as he writes this Gospel, you can almost hear the tragedy of this moment in his voice as he says, not even his brothers, not even they believed in Him. Not even those who grew up with Him. Not even those who slept in the same room, probably on the same mat. Not even those who ate with Him, believed in Him. Not even those who were exposed to His wisdom throughout the entirety of their lives up to this point. Not even they believed in Him. Not even those who had to note that there was something special and godlike about him. Not even those that were present or at least had an awareness that he went into the temple, overturned the money changers tables, and made the messianic plea, this is my father's house. Not even those who were overly familiar with him. Not even those that were so frequently exposed to Him. Not even those who knew Him on a day-to-day basis. Not even they believed. The roots of unbelief go deep into the heart and they spread wide throughout the mind. Why did they not believe? I think it's very simple. Because let me tell you what unbelief is. Unbelief is an inward and a twisted perspective of glory. That's what unbelief is. Unbelief is a twisted and inward perspective that I have more value and my opinion is greater than that of the Savior's. Now, we know that this is a matter of glory... Because if we look forward to verse 18, we're told by Jesus that anyone that speaks from himself seeks his own what? Seeks his own glory. The word glory is from a Greek word doxa. And it means this in part. It means in part to have an opinion and to express that opinion just think about that a moment you have an opinion of yourself you have an opinion of god you have an opinion of how you are to live your life out in relation to god flip side of that coin god has an opinion of you god has an opinion of himself god has an opinion of how we are to live out our lives in relation to Him. So how does a man give glory to God? A man gives glory to God when man submits to, concedes to, God's opinion of God, God's opinion of man's need for God, and God's opinion of how man is supposed to relate to God. Now, what that could have, should have looked like in the lives of the brothers probably was a whole lot of questions and no admonishment whatsoever. Brother, what is it that you would want of me during this time? Brother, what is your plan and your purpose for me? Brother, what is your opinion of my purpose at this moment that I would concede and submit to your opinion for my life. Brother, you tell me. Believing in Christ involves a seeking out in the sense because to believe in Christ means to seek out His opinion of my daily need his opinion of what my life should look like, and not only to seek out his opinion, but to trust his opinion and trust him to aid me to live out his opinion. So to believe in Christ means that I have to prioritize and reorient my opinions so that I see that his opinion is of much greater value than my opinion or the opinions of the world. His opinion is much greater than all of the multitude of opinions that are lingering out there that continue to call and whisper and speak and instruct and lead. And in this context, specifically, to believe in Christ means to to adhere to the Savior's opinion about Himself. To believe in Christ in this context, in this passage for the brothers and for us means to believe that the person is much more valuable than his performance. Now, let me be a little more specific. They're not struggling with his performance. Not struggling with what he's doing. As a matter of fact, they're saying, hey, let's go to Judea. Let's make this a little more public. Show everybody what you got. And even that's rooted in their glory because they want to be a part of this show of power. They want to be a part of this show of acclaim. So to believe that the person is more valuable than his performance means that I believe that Jesus' claims of His Messiahship, He's a Savior, I'm a sinner, I need Him is much more valuable than anything that He can do for me outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you this. That's the truth that's holding the Flager family together at the graveside yesterday. That's the truth that holds them together today at a memorial service. Because Don established through his life that there's a centerpiece Of life. There's a centerpiece of our joy and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's found in seeking Him out and finding Him to be the greatest treasure. Let me suggest that if for a moment we think that we're going to find greater treasure in the things that He may do or may not do for us rather than our greatest treasure being in Him as the person, the moment that tragedy comes, our hearts break and shatters into a million pieces. If our joy is not in the person, but we're seeking joy in His performance. Do you believe that? Do you think that you can relate to the brother's struggle for just a moment? I don't think that the consistent struggle that we have is really making peace with the Savior's works or the things that the Savior does or don't do. Now, that's not to say that there aren't going to be times that we may say, God, I don't get it. Why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? But that's not our consistent struggle. Our consistent struggle the struggle that takes place between the flesh and the spirit, it's not a struggle with the Savior's works, beloved. It's a struggle with the Savior's words. It's not what He does, it's what He says. That's our struggle. You see, we've just read in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. As a matter of fact, let's read that together, please. Jason talked about this last week. Starting in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said words to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So after this, many of the disciples left Jesus. After what? After he healed the sick. After he fed the five thousand? After he walked on water? No. No, they didn't leave him after that. He was a well-wanted man for those types of things. Everyone left Jesus when Jesus spoke words that were of such a strong opinion that, so strong was there, was his opinion that the intention was very specific. The intention of Jesus' words are always to restructure and reprioritize our very way of life. Now listen, Jesus' words are always of such a strong opinion that either He really does have the words that lead to eternal life, and He's really serious, and He really loves us, and He really wants to empower us, and He really wants us to have life, and life abundantly, or He is crazy. It's one of the two. John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, confronting the statement that Jesus was just a good man, which is what a lot of people say. As a matter of fact, we just read, it's what the people in Judea are saying. They're murmuring, he's a good guy. John Stott says, listen, if he wasn't God in the flesh, he is in no way a good man. He is a bad man because all he does is go around talking about himself. He talks like the Old Testament revolves completely around him. He acts as if the New Testament revolves completely around himself. He says that he alone has the words, has the words of eternal life to give to people. He said that he alone was living water that could uh, give people eternal satisfaction to their thirsts. He said that He alone was bread, and if you partook of that bread, you would never be hungry again. Listen, if He was not God in the flesh, He was in no way a good man. He was a megalomaniac. He was an egomaniac. If He's not who He said He was. I'm rarely torn in relation to the things that Christ does. But guys, I have to be honest. There are some times... When Jesus says, this is how you are to live your life, and those words have the ability to shake me at my very core when He says, this is how you love. This is how you live. This is how you submit. I don't wrestle with the fact that Jesus fed the multitudes with bread. I don't even really need to know how He did that. I don't need to... I don't, I don't wrestle that much when that long awaited job that I really wanted and kind of had my sights set on fell through. I don't, I don't wrestle very long, (laughs) maybe for a few moments, but I don't wrestle very long when that doesn't come through for me. But I'm going to tell you, man, when Jesus says, cash in all of your chips and place all of your bets on me alone to be your bread, Me alone to be your sustenance. Me alone to be your primary chief source of joy and happiness. Me alone to be the provider of your family. Or me primarily to be the the provider of your family, your wife and your children. Me primarily to be your protector. Now when he says those types of things, he's not just imposing an opinion. He's imposing an opinion that He expects me to have faith in and I either believe that He is setting me up to finally have life and have life abundantly or I'm just going to fail miserably. Do you trust Christ's opinion of Himself, of you, how we're to relate to Him? Do you, do you trust His opinion when He talks about humility? Humility? Do you trust his opinion when he says this is how you love your wife? Do you trust his opinion in all matters of your life? Jason Jeffers says, which I think is very wisdom to opinionated people like me. For the opinionated, the opinion and the self are one. The more self-identified we are, the more that I take glory that's set aside for God and direct it toward myself. The more self-identified we are, the more we will identify with our own opinions. You will also tend to be emotionally entangled within your own situations, problems, Experiences and thoughts. If you are an opinionated person and someone threatens your belief system, your entire sense of survival will seemingly depend on your ability to defend those beliefs. This identification with your own opinions will only serve to cement your clouded state of unconsciousness. What do you think he's saying there? I think he's saying, look, your opinions sometimes, my opinions sometimes, not only do they need measured against the plumb line of God's truth, I think he's saying sometimes they just need rattled. Sometimes our opinions need rattled because they can be so prone to be defined by our thoughts. You do know that sometimes I can find myself praying based on my opinions of what I think life should look like. No different from the brothers in the sense of, I think life should look like this. I think my life should look like that. So I begin to pray in that direction. They're not unreasonable prayers by any means makes sense, seem to work for my life where it is, and I begin to pray in those directions and ask God to stamp His approval on my prayers by bringing my prayers into a reality. And if my prayers aren't brought into a reality because I'm of such a strong opinion that they should have been, I become discouraged when God didn't do for me the thing that I thought He should have done because that's my opinion of how my life should work and how my life should run. What do we do about that? Puritan Thomas Vincent said, and I think it's a starting point for us. Disturb sin as much as you can. Wage war every day with your remaining lusts. Let no day pass over your heads without giving some blows and some thrusts and some wounds to sin. Shake up your opinions. Secondly, to believe in Christ is to finally experience satisfaction. Let's read verse six through nine. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So, if Jesus said in verse seven, "The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that that its works are evils are evil," then he has to necessarily be saying, "The world can't hate you because you don't testify against the world." You don't testify that its deeds are evil. In other words, the world really can't hate you because there's not a big difference between you and the world. There's nothing that the world would look at you and stand in opposition against. Do you know that statistically, and and, and let me say this quickly, I think that we're a part of a fellowship that's a little unique, in the sense that I think it's a desire for the people of Providence to want to serve the Lord. We do it imperfectly, absolutely, but I think the desire is seated there. We're a minority. Do you know that statistically, there's just not a lot of differences between Christians and non Christians? There's no difference in divorce rate among Christians and non Christians. None. There's no, there's no difference in teen pregnancies among Christians and non-Christians. The only couple of areas that there seems to be a little bit of a difference on is that Christians don't buy as many lottery tickets as non-Christians. And Christians don't view as much sexually explicit material as non-Christians. But other than that, we're kind of trucking along on the same page with non-Christians. Statistically, why do you think that is? I think it's important that we try to discover that because to believe in Christ is to believe in His opinion of how we should be interacting and intermingling with the world. Now, let me tell you what I think that means. And I'm going to tell you a way that I think this could be restated and not lose any integrity and maybe even, hopefully, prayerfully, add a little bit more clarity. Because I think this could be restated by Jesus saying, the world cannot hate you because you don't have enough of God's love in you to hate the sin that the world brings to the table of your life. Now let me try to restate that. What I'm trying to say is, the world will only hate me as much as I love people enough to hate the sin that defines them. The world will hate me when I love people, because my love for people will cause me to hate sin. Now, if we want to be non-offensive as a church or as individuals, it's very simple. Don't confront sin. Let's just shut up about sin. We don't need to talk about it. We don't need to seek to expose it. And by that alone, we will be non-threatening. If, I, if the world does not hate me, it's a love issue. I'm spitting. If the world does not hate me, it's a... I'm a spitting preacher, watch out. <laughs> if the world does not hate me, it's a love issue. Yes, yes, that's right. It is a love issue because the same Savior that came in love and... Delivered the woman caught in the very act of adultery from being killed by a bunch of religious fanatics. The same Savior who, in love, reinstated his disciples on the night after they fled from him on the night that he was betrayed. That's the same Savior that came to this world with a specific message Your works are evil. Your deeds are evil. And I want to assure you that as much love that defined him when he retrieved the woman caught in adultery is the same love that defines him when he looks at a world and says, listen, your deeds are evil. To believe in Christ, it's not a call to muster up hate well, I'm going to try to hate the things that Jesus hates or I'm going to try to hate the things that I consider to be the things of the world. And my fear is that, guys, we do that so often and it's so dreadful. so dreadful and it comes across so dreadful to try to muster up hate for the things of the world and the things that people do in the world versus... And I think my fear is that. My fear is that are we going to try to hate for the sake of hating or are we going to first learn to love and the overflow of that be we necessarily hate the things that are hurting people in this world? I think think that is kind of our challenge because it's only going to be when I'm flooded, flooded with God's love that I necessarily begin to hate certain things. If I love the purity of marriage, I will hate the things that tear down the purity of marriage. If I love being on the golf course, I'm going to hate rain. If I love children and I love the life that children bring, I'm going to hate the things that take away that life. Joel Bells says this in relation to the way that we interact with the world. Loving, hating. He says, I'm planning... And this is good. He says, I'm planning to be civil toward any of my neighbors who may be heading for the local mosque. But in no way will I accept the charge that to tell them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus is to jeopardize the pluralism that has made America a great springboard of freedom. And in no way either will I concede the right, a right that has now become a duty to tell them that the error of their thinking is profound I'm not going to not do those things. Why? I will not do that, not because I hate them, but because I, finish the sentence, because I love them. That's why I'll do it. That's why I will say that sin, you're a sinner, you need a savior, because I love people enough to do that. 1 John 2.15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The opposite must be true. If the love of the Father is in us, then we must hate the things of the world because of what the things of the world do to the people of the world. Now, I want to tell you another reason why the world is so unsatisfying and the love of God is so satisfying. Jesus' indictment is that the world is evil. What He says in this passage. The Greek word for evil doesn't mean just evil. It means labors, annoyances, hardships, toils, troubles. See, the reason that the world is so unsatisfying is because it is so toilsome to try to find any type of long-term satisfaction in the world whatsoever. Yes, we can find it in times and in places, but it is so short-term that it doesn't take long for us to be consumed with the need to go back and to try to find different forms or greater depths of satisfaction. It's almost like an addict of any kind. This type of drug, yeah, it'll do the job for a while, but it isn't long before I have to go and I have to have something different and I have to have something stronger in order to bring me satisfaction. And I do not believe that is any coincidence whatsoever that all of this is taking place at the backdrop of the Feast of Booths. Let me tell you why. The Feast of Booths was an eight-day feast where the people of God remembered God's people's wanderings in the wilderness. So for eight days during this feast, they built makeshift houses or tents made out of sticks, leaves, whatsoever, to remind themselves of the very fragile conditions that God's people lived in during their time in the wilderness as they were making their way home. Just as foolish as it would have been for God's people to build a permanent dwelling place in a temporary location, so temporary that it was not their home, that is as foolish as it is for us to have an unhealthy and ungodly attachment to a world that is not our home. This isn't our home. We're not called, we're not called to set up a permanent dwelling place here. So belief in Christ is freedom from any type of temporary satisfaction that this world can give me and an exposure to the satisfaction that comes only from the person of Christ. Do you believe that opinion of Him? It's no wonder Augustine said, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Lewis said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The real thing being satisfaction in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. How do we do that? Lastly, quickly, to believe in Christ is to faithfully submit to His Lordship. Verse 10-13 through But after His brothers had gone up to the feast, then He also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for Him at the feast and saying, where is He? And there was much muttering about Him among the people, while some said He's a good man, others said, no, He's leading the people astray, yet for the fear of Jews, fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. We're kind of confronted with the most important issue that any of us will face as we make this decision of Christ's opinion confronting our opinion. It's said that Thomas Jefferson was a man of great intellectual ability. He was a man of science. He was a man of agriculture. He was obviously a politi- uh, competent politician. He was the founder of the University of Virginia, or Virginia, and he was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. But his wisdom went astray on him in spiritual matters. What Thomas Jefferson did was he took a pair of scissors and or a razor, and he cut out portions of the Bible or different portions of Scripture. And he placed them in the order that he thought they should go. And he placed them based upon what he considered to be truth. And Thomas Jefferson created his own Bible. And it's interesting that he kept all of the ethical teachings of Christ intact, yet he omitted most of the miracles in Scripture, including the virgin birth and the power of the resurrection, the resurrection itself. Historian Edward Gustad said, If a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived in Jeffersonian Scripture, but the miracle did not. And I'm kind of wondering if there are times in our lives, guys, when we, times in our hearts, in our minds, when we may have anything in common with Thomas Jefferson. And I'm not suggesting in any way, of course, that we would take a pair of scissors or a black permanent marker and begin to omit parts of Scripture. But I guess I am kind of wondering, are there times when we would perhaps move away from or move on from certain passages that confront our dreams, that confront our doctrinal stances, that confront our way of life? You know, passages of Scripture that are very piercing or challenging, or difficult to deal with, that challenge my lifestyle, challenge my goals. Christian magazine, by the name of Relevant, published an article titled, Eight Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Number one, I wish Jesus would have never said I'm blessed when I'm persecuted for my beliefs. Secondly, I wish he would have never said I've cheated on my wife when I've checked out an attractive woman. I wish He would never said, I can't love God and money at the same time. Not to worry, not to doubt. I wish He wouldn't have said to take sin so seriously. I wish He wouldn't have said to pay my taxes and my tithes. I wish He wouldn't have said to love my neighbor as myself. So I'm wondering if there are portions of the Scripture that we just kind of move away from or we possibly have created our own list of things that we just... Avoid. My wife and I are meeting with a young couple who are pretty serious in their relationship. And it was actually their idea to establish some accountability this way in the form of purity. Okay, So they came up with the idea. You know, we've been talking about this, and I think we're going to write up a covenant. These are the things that we're going to promise to commit to, and then we're going to present this covenant to you guys, and you hold us accountable to that. Great idea. That's an awesome idea. Last week. I'm meeting with this young man. I'm saying, okay, where's the covenant? He's like, man, I haven't done it yet. And I'm like, okay, why? And jokingly yet half-heartedly serious, man, I don't want to. I'm like, okay, why do you not want to? Man, I don't want to because I know I'm going to have to write some things that I have to do that really I just don't want to do. I know I'm going to have to draw some lines in the sand And stick to these. And you know what? I just want what I want. And I think that kind of says it best, doesn't it? There are times when we just want what we want. Amy Carmichael said it best. I think it was her. The heart just simply wants what it wants. Now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to finish Thomas Vincent's quote and we're going to sum this up. A quote that I started. Disturb sin as much as you can. Wage war every day with your remaining lusts. Let no day pass over your heads without giving some blows, some thrusts, and wounds to sin. Particularly, this is the latter part, take heed of inordinate love to the world and the things in the world. The prevalence of which love will dampen your love to Christ. By how much more the world gets of your love By so much, the less Christ will have it. So we're just kind of left to struggle with Christ's opinion and how His opinion confronts our opinions. Now, I want to tell you the good news in this passage. I believe Sproul's right. It's one of the most troubling texts in the New Testament. But let me tell you the hope that's found in it. We're told that Jesus' brothers didn't believe. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is they came to believe. Not only did they come to believe, but they came to be martyrs. and Not all of them. Some we just don't know. James came to be a martyr for Christ. So when he began to pen the book of James that we know, he speaks about our Lord, our Savior, he refers to himself as a slave to Christ. Wow, the new meaning there. So the rest of the story is in the midst of, regardless of how deep the roots of unbelief go into the heart, regardless of how widespread they are into the mind, even in the midst of the greatest degree and depth of unbelief, the good news is God still saves. God still calls. Let me ask you this. How many people in here would say, man, I need to be a man, woman, young man, young woman who is defined by a deeper degree of belief? Would that apply to anybody? Yeah, probably every one of us. Let me ask you this Do you know anyone? Do you have any relationships? Do you have any acquaintances? People need to believe, period, they're lost. You have lost people that you know? Let me say this The roots of unbelief run deep in their heart, broad in their mind. But the good news is Christ. Christ can rip out roots of unbelief and call people to believe. That's the good news. Can we pray about that this morning? Bow our heads, please. Father, we just want to say, God, that we're extremely thankful to be here. And Lord, would You... I don't know, sometimes I just feel like the man who brought his sick son to the disciples that couldn't heal him. And yet, Jesus, you said, anything can happen if we just believe? The man's response was, I believe. Yet coupled with that, he said, Help my help me in my unbelief. So God, we may believe. We may believe truth. We may it may be something that's near to our heart. But could you take the preciousness of of, of what you say that we believe to be true and make it true in our lives? Make it a truth that we can live out in our lives. Would you do that, God? Would you would you help us to be a people who are defined by belief, God? We want to believe, we want to believe your word. We want to believe your words. And we want to believe that they, they have meat and they mean something to us, where we are, where we're living. Shape us, God. Help us, convict us, change us. And we would ask that You would do these things and that we would appropriate glory where it needs to go. God, that You would be glorified. That Your opinion would smash our opinions of our lives and our self What we think we're out to accomplish. God, just change us. If we need changed, where we need changed, change us. I look at the brothers and I realize, God, you're so different. You're so different than us. Every way in our lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.